You have to learn how your spouse communicates. Tammy can say more with an eye roll and a sigh. I'll tell you, this is... What do you mean? I didn't say anything. Oh, yes, you did. It took me two years of marriage to figure out she'll never tell me to do anything around our home. If Tammy wants me to do something, she'll ask me a question. It's from the question, I gotta stand there and figure out what does she want me to do. <laughs> Give you an example. Let's just say I leave a pair of my underwear in the middle of the bedroom floor, which frosts my wife. That's her word when she's really angry with me. That just frosts me. <laughs> and if I'm not frosting her, I'm driving her up a wall. That's another one. Kids would come in, where's mom? She's up the wall with frostbite, that's all I know. And you won't believe what put her there, boy. It was that pair of underwear in the middle of the bedroom floor. You were looking at the most powerful piece of cotton on the planet. <laughs> so I leave my underwear in the middle of the floor. Now, would she come to me in her frosted condition and say to me, pick those up. That's three words. Pick those up. Three words. Would she say no? Because that would be simple, direct, and right to the point. And at that moment, I would know exactly what she wanted from me. I would process that information and make a rational decision as to whether or not I would deliver the request. We would then be communicating at the highest human level, the way God the Creator intended it, through language. Tammy looks at me, looks at my underwear, and then asks, are those yours? Well, I sure hope they are, otherwise I got a few questions of my own, but... start with some laughs, right? Uh, this past week, Luke and I were playing on the living room floor in our home. And uh, as we looked out, the snow was not falling, but it had fallen the night before. And uh, I had these longings uh, to be in a place where in the season of the year where some of us think about sandy, warm beaches, all right? So previous former life. And, and all of a sudden, as Luke grabs, re-grabs my attention, says, Daddy, I say, yes. And he pulls out this little rubber tire. It's a Lego tire and says, Daddy, I'm going to get married. And he kind of puts it on his finger. And uh, so even though as we engage a, a challenging topic, a wonderful topic, uh, and, and one that oftentimes can be very easy to draw upon our cynicism for, uh, know that marriage is still ringing in the hearts of even children as young as four years old. Marriage uh, is a good and wonderful thing. As our spiritual family here at Serve travels together in the life of Jesus, uh, we are navigating through the Gospel of Mark, one of the narratives of his life, and we come to a challenging teaching Jesus gives uh, on marriage and divorce. And we know that there is both deep, deep joy, uh, joys around this topic, and we also know there are deep pains. Uh, we know that there are always real stories, and we know that there are real stories behind the stories as well. And so as we open up together, I'd love to just pray one more time as we dive into this teaching from the life of Jesus. God, we thank you. We thank you for marriage. We thank you for your view on marriage. We thank you for your mercies and your kindness, and we thank you for the ways you're going to speak to us. And so we open to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
Let me tell you where we're going to navigate this morning, all right? Here's how we're going to go about it. So first, we're going to be navigating through Jesus' teachings on divorce in both Mark 10 and Matthew 19, all right? So we'll start there. Uh, we're going to get a little bit of what Jesus was confronting in his day. We're then going to offer some encouragements to those of us who may uh, have experienced or are, are challenged by divorce. And our hope is that there would be great mercies and great love and great healing. We're also going to spend a brief time in Ephesians 5 because the teaching there from Paul is going to add on to top or kind of flesh out a little bit of what Jesus says in Mark 10. And then we're going to land the ship by uh, teasing out a few next steps to consider. All right, so that's where we're headed. Okay, so Mark 10, beginning verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So Jesus goes into a new area back uh, towards Judea and Jerusalem. He is nearing the end of his public ministry. He is very close to his death within weeks or months at this time. And the Pharisees, we've seen quite a few times the leading religious uh, group of the day, the Jewish religious group, came to him to ensnare Jesus on his views of marriage. That's what's going on here. Is it lawful to divorce your wife. And they are testing Jesus to see his level of leniency in divorce. All right, that's what they're after. Uh, in the Greco Roman world, uh, they, men had all the power in the marriage relationship uh, to divorce in basically any circumstance they decided. Jewish culture of the day was uh, a little bit more conservative, uh, but there were still differing views in different people uh, for how, you know, kind of lenient they were, right? And so if you notice the question, though, one factor in it is very clear. They're asking, is it only a man who can divorce, right? So they believe that only the man had the, the even ability to divorce the wife, right? So the patriarchalism of the first century is very clear and obvious in the moment. Now, Jesus, as a brilliant conversationalist, uh, he did this regularly. He would turn a question on a question. So here he goes. What did Moses command you? He replied. And in saying this, Jesus is pointing them to the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible uh, that are attributed to Moses. And they respond, verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, the Pharisees here are drawing upon Deuteronomy 24. We don't have time to go there. Another time you can check it out. It's the final book of the Torah. Uh, but honestly, there's some pretty challenging teaching there in Deuteronomy 24. It could be understood if taken alone that God has a very, like, hey, you know, kind of a flippant view of marriage. That would be incorrect. But if you only look there, you might think that for a moment. And so in that moment, the Pharisees are feeling quite self-justified. Right? Like, oh yeah, we know. Moses said you can divorce. Like, we're good. Case closed. Uh, they are saying, look, they're reinforcing their own patriarchalism of the day. Um, and that this, of course, has, has really subjugated women and put them in a challenging, challenging situation for centuries now. And so that's what they're drawing upon. But watch what Jesus does. In his brilliance, he has set up a trap. And look what he says in verse 5. It was because your hearts were hard. That Moses even wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What does Jesus do? Jesus takes them much earlier 
right? He says, oh, you, you gave me Deuteronomy 24. Let me take you back to the second chapter of the entire Bible, Genesis chapter 2. He takes these spiritual leaders to town because what he's saying is, look, you have bypassed the key framework for all of marriage and relationship uh, according to God. He describes here marriage being this beautiful, wondrous, binding, one flesh, whole life covenant. That is what he is unpacking, a covenant so inspiring that men and women leave their parents, their, their previous family of origin and uh, binding, and make a new commitment that launches out a new family. And God's original intention here, according to Genesis 2, prior to the fall, prior to any fallenness, prior to any disobedience from people against God and his ways, paints a picture where nothing should break the covenant of marriage. Like nothing. And so we get the sound of silence. The Pharisees say nothing. They kind of fizzle out. And Jesus' statement illuminates the offense of the patriarchy of his day. Jesus' teaching here is a subversion. The only reason Moses even had to write you that is because of the hardness of heart, because of our fall, because of the, yes, we find ourselves in a deeply complex, broken, hurting, pain-filled world. Yes, Moses allowed for, for divorce, but not in the original picture and creation that God had made. And so he is certainly in this moment saying, Pharisees, wake up. Like, wake up. Do not have some flippant view of divorce, some power grabbing in marriage. Reawaken to God's design and desire for marriage. It starts a lot earlier than what you just said to me. And so I believe Jesus is quite angry with their question. I believe what he's angry with is a posture of what I would just say is kind of the lowest common denominator thinking. Let me give you an example. In the beauty of our marriage, uh, Carissa is our laundry champion, okay, around the house. Uh, I will help move stuff. I will help uh, put it in the washer or the dryer. I cannot fold those crisp edges like, I don't know what's wrong with me, can't do it, okay? So that's our marriage. I will help in certain ways, but she is the folder master. And oftentimes in a rush, when we're getting the kids out the door, uh, there can be moments where I'm grabbing clothes and trying to put them on the kids and maybe somebody goes like Caleb's like no I don't want that shirt I want something else and in my rush I'll put it back and I will not crisply fold that edge like it will not look the same and so often Carissa has on dozens of occasions said Morgan it really frustrates me when I open up a drawer and there are all these like clothing craziness going on there like when you put it back fold it put it in and in my finer moments in my marriage I will respond with something like but I got the kids dressed like they're out the door right that's lowest common denominator thinking, right? It's actually minimizing and it's overlooking her honest concerns. That's what Jesus is doing here. Like, why are you even bringing me this type of question, Pharisees? That's not the right question. Now, in the, uh, what also happens often in the life of Jesus is the further teaching for his disciples in some private setting. Look what happens next. It says, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, this teaching on divorce. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, this is a very strong statement. Okay? And so there's no getting around that. However, what I would like to do, this is where we're going to jump over to Matthew 19, because there is some nuance that Jesus brings to us there. I want to hear that description and nuance a little further. So Matthew 19, beginning of verse 3, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. 
I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So a similar setup, but a few nuances, right? Uh, is it lawful to divorce for any and every reason? We really get some motives here from the Pharisees, right? Like we really get how much they are trying to say like, uh, hey, can we just do whatever we want, right? We really get that even more strongly. And then we see in Jesus' response, again, verses 8 and 9, the very specific except clause, right? The except for sexual immorality. What we see, Jesus has the same super high view of marriage, right? Uh, he hints at the Genesis 2 passage. It was not so from creation. And he likewise, the whole purpose, though, is to get people to deeply fight for this whole life covenant that is known as marriage, which is not a contract for agreement for our own happiness and self-fulfillment, right? This is a, an entirely different view from the culture that we are swimming in. Right? Because hands down, the strongest voice of our culture is to say marriage is about you, your self-fulfillment and happiness. Find someone who will make you happy. And this is not Jesus' vision for marriage. I want to say one more note on the accept clause. It's been deeply abused. Like this has been something that can be deeply abused in countless contexts. Uh, through the hardness of hearts, which is what Jesus is attacking, uh, many people have said, well, great, if I want a divorce, like, I guess I need to commit me some sexual immorality so I can get us both off the hook, right? That is a deep abuse. Historically, the church has also understood, yes, Jesus only mentions here sexual immorality, but does God make space for any other reasons of divorce? Things like physical abuse to children or to spouse. Things like continued emotional and verbal assault. Absolute and complete neglect where one spouse leaves and doesn't come back. Are there other spaces for divorce? And we would say, yes, like we are in this complex, broken, deeply hurting world. But it's never desirable, and there's pathways towards healing as well. But sometimes divorce is necessary. Now, as the disciples digest these words, again, verse 10, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept that word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And so Jesus gives us the, like, the dumb moment, which is marriage is hard. Like, we see it, and he affirms that. And he says for some, the path of singlehood is a way to go. And Jesus obviously modeled that himself. Uh, he lived a single life. Paul, one of the early leaders of the church, also followed Jesus in that singlehood. And so he's just simply making space for that as well. Now, we've unpacked. Let's pause. And can I ask to shepherd a little bit? Okay? Can I ask that we would lean in a bit tenderly? And can I speak to even those who have experienced divorce in their past? And I really feel like one thing that needs to be said openly is that you're a whole person. That the narratives of being damaged goods does not come from the Lord. And that there's no less valuable, uh, your life is no less valuable or worthy. Like that is not what God has to say here at all. And you haven't done anything that does not, or that separates you from the love of God. There's nothing 
that is not the case. And so if you are continuing to carry the wounds, the shame, uh, the blame, the anguish of past choices, my hope is that you would hear some of these words from Paul. He says, therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Like Paul speaks that over you right now, that there is not shame and that Jesus brings healing and he brings rescue and he brings wholeness to whatever past decisions we have made. I'm also reminded of Jesus' deep invitation to all people, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Like Jesus wants to speak that to those of us in the room as well. And so my hope is that the presence and the power of Jesus would bring healing and wholeness to you. And if I can speak a few more words, I wanna encourage you and remind you that uh, some of the beauty of, of Jesus and his kingdom is in the upside down economy of the kingdom of Jesus, you might even have the most seamless path to serving Jesus wholeheartedly. The heart behind Jesus' de deeper teaching to his disciples in Matthew 19 is to say that if you are unmarried, whether you're continually, or whether you're choosing to actively choose that status or whether it has been thrust upon you, again, based on previous circumstances, you have an avenue to singularly focus on loving and serving the king. And that turns things upside down. And so in, co in contrast to a cultural narrative that says, hey, you must find your happiness and satisfaction in a marriage relationship, or on the other side of the cultural narrative, you know what, that marriage thing, that's old and crazy, like let's just chuck that, which is happening quite a bit in our uh, culture as well, because that's just a constraint on personal freedom and autonomy. Regardless of those two poles, Jesus' kingdom offers a very different ethic. And it says, if you choose to walk in a pathway of singlehood, or even if it's thrust upon you, you can make an immense kingdom impact full of agape, self-sacrificing love to those around you. And so I'd argue that is good news. All right. Now, can I also take a moment to encourage marriages in the room? Uh, because obviously Jesus in saying all this is lifting up a very high view of marriage. His desire with this Genesis 2 framework for marriage as a covenant, as this enduring one flesh whole life union, is to encourage people to, to do that well. And so if there were a singular idea I would love for us all to, to kind of take in in this moment, it, it would be this from Doug Fields and other marriage gurus around the country, is that your marriage is designed to be the most transformational pathway for Christ-likeness, and for the fruits of the spirits to grow in you and for your spouse to be the beneficiary, maybe the greatest beneficiary of those fruits of the spirit. Let me say that one more time. I know that's like a big statement here, all right? So your marriage is designed to be the most transformational pathway for you to become more like Jesus, for the fruits of the spirit to grow in you and for your spouse to benefit from the fruits of the spirit as you become more like Jesus. And that is a very different picture of marriage. It's fundamentally different from our culture's view. It says that marriage is a crucible for holiness, 
right, for becoming like Jesus, this person we love and worship and adore around here, for this God to refine you and form you, and for you to grow in the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and patience, peace, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And not that marriage would, grow, would benefit in an abstract way, but your spouse specifically would benefit from that. And that is a very different picture. And that's why what we need is a word from Paul. Because I believe in Ephesians 5, we get a little bit of the how-to. Like, how does that actually happen? We need to engage that just a touch here. And so the picture of marriage will blow us away if we can only imagine it and be captured by it. So Ephesians 5, verse 21 says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands, uh, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with, the word, washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, he quotes the same thing Jesus did, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, drawing a little bit from the work of John Tyson and some of his background in the passage, I know these opening words are jarring, submit, right? You know, it's very easy, like, oh, come on, aren't we in the 21st century? Like, just ditch the language of submit. But I need you to hang in there with me. Uh, because the life of Jesus, and we've been walking in this in his life, there is a call to surrender our lives to him. That's for all people everywhere. If you follow Jesus, there's this call to surrender and to submit our allegiance to him and to his ways. And there is a call in this specific passage to mutual submission. Submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Yet, that submission looks very different. There's actually a gendered response that looks different for what it looks like for husbands to submit to their wives and wives to submit to their husbands. That's what he goes into. And so just so I don't lose us, let me speak to the men first. How about that? Okay. Uh, husbands, this is their submitting. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I've underlined the command words, love and sacrifice, or love, and gave himself up to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing through the water, through the word, and to present her to himself, a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The submitting for husbands is to love and to sacrifice or to die to themselves. It's to reflect the love that Jesus has for his church, this unending, enduring love. This was so subversive in Paul's day. So subversive. Men would have been shaking their head when they said, hey, wives, submit to your husbands. Like, everybody's on the same page. And as soon as Paul says, men, here's what you need to do, love and sacrifice, they would have been blown away. 
In the Greco-Roman world, uh, the regular understanding of marriage was, yep, you've got your wife, and what is she to do? Take care of the home and hopefully give you more men children, ideally. A few gals, fine, but we're looking for male lineage. And on the side, most Greco-Roman men had numerous concubines that they would access for sexual pleasure whenever they wanted. This was just the going way it works. Like, here's my sexual outlet, and then here's my wife to take care of stuff. Yeah, in the background as well, the Jewish culture was far better than that. Uh, they, they understood the word of God, and so that reined them in from rampant um, you know, polygamy and such in the first century. But there still was a very high prioritization and understanding that men had greater value than women in that culture. One of the regular synagogue prayers of the day, which is not ordained by God, okay? So this is not an affirmation of it, but one of the regular synagogue prayers. God, thank you for not making me a Gentile, meaning a non-Jew, a slave, or a woman. It's just one of the regular prayers that men would pray there. So, the call to submit through sacrificial love, through dying and denying themselves, was a ghastly offense. And you know what? What's so funny is that in the first century, according to most historians or many Roman historians, Christian marriages were one of the leading factors among a few things that began to, cr to crumble the Roman Empire. Christian marriages were so utterly otherworldly that they flipped over society when Greco-Roman men started saying, no, no, I don't access the concubines anymore. Like, like I don't operate that way. There's a new allegiance in the kingdom that, that does not allow for that. That started changing things, among many other things, that when Christian husbands started sacrificing and denying themselves and bringing their sexual urges and desires back rightly into the whole life covenant to become one flesh union, marriage that Jesus speaks of. And so husbands in the room, the primary calling in your life is to love God and revere him, and to love your spouse as Jesus has loved the church. And that is a, an amazing view that should put us on our knees all the time, <laughs> right? And, and this call to love and sacrifice to die for them is rarely gonna result with you needing to jump in front of a moving car or to beat up some other dude. Like sometimes it might, okay? But that's probably not the, for, the most primary thing that Jesus is after here, that Paul is after here. It's actually instead our key sacrifice is a shift in question and posture. Here's our natural stuff, right? How do I get this woman to meet my needs? Right, like that, that's the natural posture of marriage right there. And it's instead replaced with God Almighty. Like how do I pour myself out for the needs of this woman? Like how do I do that today? And so married men, if we would learn to circle back here again and again, if we would learn to ask the Spirit of God to fill us up so that we would be a people that can continue to pour out into our spouses day after day, no strings attached, no if-then clauses, we're going to start to see and experience the kingdom of God breaking into our lives and in our homes. What we need to do is continually go to war with the natural posture of our own selfishness that takes the form of all sorts of things. And so men, let us do that. Wives, can I encourage you as well? 
Because the gendered response that Paul calls out here, he says to submit and to respect your husbands. And respecting and and submitting to husbands can sound harsh and again have very commonly often been used to subjugate, to twist, to control. Uh, I can imagine it even sounding like a mini job description or something. Uh, And the word here, uh, submit, even has kind of a, it has a military connotation, meaning to get in line with, like to get in line. And again, I can understand how that might ruffle some feathers, but before we resist that nuance even, what is the wife called to submit to? To rules? To commands? No. Like she's submitting to a man, her husband, who is dying to himself. Right? Who is loving sacrificially. She is not submitting to men in some patriarchal cultural milieu. She is not submitting, instead, she's submitting to her covenantal partner. Right? Who is giving his life to her. What we're supposed to see at work in this, is, is this view where the man is dying and where she is submitting and respecting, where the gospel is actually on display. And what it does is it calls both husbands and wives to their continual abandoning to the other. And what that begins to move us toward, towards, as Tyson would say, is that marriage as a portal and a pointer to the story of Jesus. Like that's what it becomes. That our marriages should preach the gospel of relational reconciliation in a culture of relational fracture. That the genders can come together and that something beautiful can happen. And the way they treat each other should make people say, what is that? That's that otherworldly Christian understanding. So here's how I'd like to land things. I'd first want, uh, want us to hear some unfiltered marriage wisdom from a, a few of us in the room who are a little bit more down the road. I reached out to some of our elders in marriage, if you will, this week uh, to offer what has, what has gone well. Uh, so I'm just going to kind of like shotgun some good marriage wisdom, and I'm hoping that something sticks for a few of us that you say, man, like that is gold right there. Uh, and then we will end with a few steps, okay? So here are a few things. I'll try not to name people, but here was one of those statements. One thing I think is so important in marriage is not forgetting common courtesy. Please and thank you mean a lot and express a lot in a very few words. I love how this scratches at the respect issue, right? When I am thanked for doing the laundry, I feel loved and less like a housekeeper. And when I ask my spouse politely for help with kids, he feels respected because he's not being treated as another child told what to do. Also along these lines is being courteous about your spouse when they're not around. Like we shouldn't talk badly about our friends when they aren't around, and so it goes with our spouse. It's funny that people understand gossip is wrong, except with your spouse and your in-laws. That's a good piece of wisdom. Another thing that my spouse is especially good at is asking on a daily basis, is there anything I need him to do? It fosters a servant heart, as well as takes off the pressure from other people's reading expectations or their minds. Another piece of wisdom, when we counsel couples, one of us will say out loud, the one thing has gotten us to 38 years of marriage, there isn't anything your spouse can say or do that you cannot forgive. A hard lesson for both my wife and I to put in practice. Another piece of marriage wisdom, start each day with prayer. Confess your own sins and pray for your spouse. The wisdom of depend on the Lord to meet your needs not your spouse. The Lord will work through your spouse to meet some of your needs some of the time. But God did not create any human being with the ability to meet every, someone's every need. Give grace, mercy, and forgiveness daily. 
Last piece of marriage advice, uh, wisdom here. Begin resolutions to any problem, understanding that we are on the same team and we want our team to thrive. This and the understanding that our problems are smaller than the importance of our relationship. Hope you had like a pen and paper because it's good. That's legit. Every one of those. And there was nearly 100 years of marital wisdom just given out. Okay? And none of it's mine. Isn't that great? Okay. Here's how we're going to land. We need some steps because we, we need to talk this thing out. First, to those who are unmarried, I really want to encourage what I would just simply say is the identity journey. By the way, this goes for all of us. This isn't like just married or unmarried. It's, it's to everyone. But to those who are unmarried, what I say in the identity journey, I've just simply put up three significant passages. There are many more. I think what my hope in saying this, to explore here, to dig deep here, is we can uh, put too much pressure on marriage. We can, uh, we want to take the steps to say, man, what does God say about me? What is his voice over my life and to root our entire lives around that? And so I really believe that as you work through, uh, if you're in a good place, if you're in a challenged place, I know for me in my singlehood, it was years of putting too much pressure on the relationship. And so my hope is that these are just a simple way to say, look, this week, would you start scratching the surface of all the beautiful things that God might want to say over you and about you? Second, for married men. I want you to ask three questions to your wife this week. So get out the phones, get out a pen, whatever you need, but three questions to your wife this week. What are you dreaming about? What are you dreaming about for you? Maybe for our family, but what are you dreaming about for you? Two, are you currently thriving in part because of me or in spite of me? Because that takes us back to Ephesians 5 where we are to nourish and cherish our wives, where we are to sacrifice for them. Are you currently thriving in part because of me? Or are you thriving in spite of me? And then third, I love that question. What do you need for me to do today on your behalf? Because I do believe that that fosters some of that sacrificial servant heart that we are called to. Married women, would you consider the first question as an internal and, and reflection journal? Probably needs to start there before a conversation. But where have I lost respect for my husband? Like where has that been challenged? Right? Because one of the things is we lose respect, and as we you know, hurt each other and <laughs> work through the challenges of marriage, when, when disrespect starts to happen there, it leads to whether it's bitterness or, or, or grievances or ways that that starts to flow out in different ways. So where have I lost respect in God? What do I need uh, to start working through that, right? to take a step there? And then it is worth a conversation. Honey, in what ways do you feel respected by me? Like, in what ways am I doing that well? And in what ways is there a gap? Where are you feeling that sense of disrespect and starting to walk through that together? The last step for all of us, pray for your spouse, like every single day this week. Would you start every day this week praying for your spouse? And then would you end every evening praying with your spouse? Uh, last Sunday, after, after the service, we held our annual partner meeting. We talked about one of the deepest things we're desiring for our church is to move from a posture of consuming to contending. And the natural thing is to consume, is to make my life about me, right? And there's so many factors in that. When I say pray for your spouse each day this week, I am saying, can we move towards contending on behalf of that person? Like, can we deeply pray over them and say, not just the, uh, like, hey, uh, get him on my agenda, get her on my agenda. No, can we contend that that person would be growing and more and more like Jesus and that we would love them more and more like Jesus? Can we actually contend for the marriages in the room? God is doing a work in and through serve. We are thankful for him. 
We are thankful for you. And let us pray as we continue worshiping this morning. Thanks for checking in to the Serve Community Church podcast. If you're interested in more information on how to connect with our community, feel led to support us in any way you can or have any further questions, check us out online on social medias like Facebook or Instagram or at our website at servecc.org. Thank you.